just before I start, I want to really honour um, Lloyd and James and Chris and all the people who um, come here early, sometimes hours earlier than we do, and they prepare their hearts for worship and they, because they've prepared their hearts for worship, are able to lead us into worship, into a posture of worship collectively. So I just want to th say thank you because it's, um, it's something they do faithfully every week and it's such a gift. Um, and it's a blessing to be with you this morning. Um, so, I've got a clicker. Um, this is the fourth Sunday in this series, Being God's Image, Flourishing as God's Creation. Um, in this series, we're considering being God, how being God's image shapes our understanding of our identity, our human voc vocation, our relationships to suffering, to our bodies, and to each other. So if you're present during the last few Sundays, please bear with me as I quickly review what we've covered so far. Um, in the first week, we looked at the creation story with Jonathan in Genesis 1, in which we see creation being established as a cosmic temple, where God creatively acts to bind together and to separate matter, bringing order and function to the cosmos. As he works, we see that God's rule and reign is expressed in the formation of order out of chaos, that it brings forth goodness out of what was darkness and void. And in the midst of this activity, God creates us. He creates humans in his image, and he places them in the holy of holies of his temple, the Garden of Eden. Um, humans are invited to join as partners with God in his creative work, and this series of acts culminates with God resting in his temple. This is the end or the climax of creation, which is God resting, residing, and enjoying his created order. So that was the first week. Feel free to listen back if you missed it. Um, in the second week, James beautifully articulated how understanding the human vocation God has given us should frame the way we think about our work in the world in all its forms. Yet, as we all know well, our experience of work often falls short of the flourishing going to say vacation <laughs> vocation vocation set forth in this passage. And then, last week, Lloyd spoke about suffering. He spoke about how sin and death have interrupted and hindered this calling. And yet we know that Jesus has began the work of reconciliation, the reconciliation of all things. And we live with both the order and the disorder, the joy and the grief. But Lloyd invited us to let the reality of suffering form a deep love and a deep need for God within us. So... All of that, a, a long preamble and context. Um, this week, I'm talking about what it means to be God's image. Um, let's see if that works. This way? That way, yeah. Our tools are confusing. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, there we go. All right. So... Um, in order to make sense of what it means to be God's image, we need to return to our primary um, passage in Genesis 1.27. So I'll, I'll quickly read that. It's highly familiar to everybody. Um, but this is, this is our origin story. This is the origin story of our lives. So Genesis 1.27 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness 
so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Again and again we hear that humanity bears the image of God. Um, as Jonathan explained in the first week, the Hebrew here for image or likeness that we see in this passage over and over again, it denotes something really specific and particular and concrete. It was not an ambiguous form of language for ancient, um, ancient Hebrews. Um, it denotes, uh, it's got this two, two words, teselem and demut, and they refer to physical idols. So I brought along some statues. These are statues, I guess, um, inherited from my grandparents. It's, um, I guess, I think actually pertinent to what we're talking about today. So it is Jesus and it is us um, worshipping God. Um, but this is what it's referring to when it says that humans were made as an idol, as an image. It means, it means something physical, like these wooden sculptures or idols. Um, so that the, the Jews, the ancient, um, ancient Jews, when they heard this, this term, image or likeness, they were not thinking of something abstract. They were thinking of a physical object that directed uh, a people group's worship towards um, a particular god. So the idols weren't the deity, but the idols um, directed towards the god that they represented. Um, let's see if this one works. Yes. Okay. So this, um, this is super interesting. This is a statue, um, a 19th century statue found in Syria in the late 80s, just in the middle. And um, on the statue in Assyrian and Aramaic, um, it actually has these terms to designate what this is. It uses both of those terms, image and likeness, on the idol itself. So um, we've got kind of material evidence that this is what likeness means. It means something physical. So when the language used in Genesis, um, when, we, when we understand it, we need to understand that the image of God is a human body. It's not something else. Um, scholars, as well as amateurs like myself, have often tried to understand what it means to be human um, by considering what makes us distinct from animals, such as our rationality, our self-consciousness, our capacity for moral judgments. Um, or we've searched for ways in which our character might be a reflection of God's, like our deep need for relationships. But almost all of these capacities have been seen outside of or apart from the body. And a key issue with locating the image of God in these particular capacities is that they can be gained and lost. If, this, if these qualities, if these capacities uh, qualified us as image bearers, would a newborn baby who's not yet rational be precluded? What about someone who's losing their memory? What about those who have lost their ability to judge right from wrong? If, we, if, if this is what it meant, it would mean that we could lose our likeness to God. Sorry, everyone. Okay. 
Um, so again, what's central to note is that the actual language yet here refers to something embodied. Ancient Hebrews did not conceive of the human self as a dualistic or tripartite person, like a self that is body, mind, and spirit. This language is present in the New Testament, um, and, and it's part of the milieu that Paul was writing within, which was influenced by Platonism. But um, ancient Jews saw the human body as an entire entity. So it is the physical, material self. It's our bodies that qualify us as being God's image. As Carmen Joy Imes um, explains succinctly, the image of God is not tied to a particular capacity, but is tied to our embodiment. Embodiment is the grounds for being made in God's image, which is a really, really radical concept that we bet God's image because we are in these bodies. Um, it means that your body and my body, flesh and blood, our fingers and toes, our posture and our gait in some way represent the reality of the living God in the world. This also means that every human being is the image of God, no matter what. We automatically always inalienably bear God's image in our bodies the incarcerated body, the migrant body, the disabled body, the suffering body. We are the image of God. No action, injury, impairment, or illness can erase this. Um, we see this made fully manifest in the incarnation. God chose to send Jesus, who's fully God, to unfurl in Mary's womb, to be born through the contraction of her muscles, Jesus, fully God and human, needed to be nursed and changed and kept warm and comforted. He felt weariness in his body. He felt the sensation of touch, the hunger of an empty stomach, the ache of wounds. And when Jesus rose from the dead, his particular human body still bore the scars of his passion. And you might be thinking, well, of course Jesus is the image of God. He is God, um, which is easy for us to, to think. And it's easy for us to fall into that assumption that the divine part of Jesus is what qualifies his, him as being the image of God. Whereas what's being suggested here is that in him being a human, in his human embodiment, that's what qualified him as an image of God. So he was the image of God as well as God. Baffling, I know. <laughs> Hard to find language that actually explains that adequately. Um, another way to think about this um, is shown in Genesis 5, 1 to 3. I think I've got that passage. Yes. Um, this is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness in his own image, and he named him Seth. So as a son of Adam, Seth carried a likeness to his father and to his mother um, in himself, in his body. And this might not necessarily denote that he was physically alike or that he had similarity of character, but the likeness between them was an intrinsic aspect of their relationship. In this sense, being the image of God is also synonymous with being God's family. Um, this, is a, this is a photo of my family from a few years ago with my 101-year-old grandmother in the middle. Um, we all look pretty different, 
well, not radically different, but a little bit different. Um, so just as I will always be the child of my parents and carry their genetic material, we also will always carry the image of God in our bodies because he made, made us in his likeness and we are his children. Of course, as in any relationship, being family doesn't necessarily mean we're intimately connected to one another. However, regardless of how estranged or close we are to our parents, nothing can diminish our status as image, barrier, as image bearers of our parents, as people who carry their likeness in our bodies. Like we, we know this from sort of uh, you know, modern genetics, right? Um, which is, which is interesting. So, um, so in the same way, we can orientate our lives towards God, our Father, and we can live in alignment with our identity as image bearers. But regardless, we carry the image with us. Um, and we, I will say, though, that in Jesus, there is a particular glory and beauty that we see because his life was lived in complete alignment with his identity as an image bearer. Um, there's something that we see in him that is the fullness of what it means to be an image bearer. Um, so what are the implications of this, I wonder? Um, you might be thinking, so what? I already know this. <laughs> um, but for me, for me personally, I think the implications are really significant. Um, you know, what if we really believed we are God's image? Always. What if we believed that all people are God's image? What would this do to our ethics? Um, we're going to do a little exercise now. <laughs> um, so what I want you to do, I'll just, um, what, what I want you to do is close your eyes. So feel free to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine in your mind's eye that you have a pen and that you're able to draw with it. No one's going to tell you it's a good or a bad drawing, but I promise. Um, so what I want you to do is I want you to draw an image of a human in your mind. Any human, a human. Okay, so can't be a stick figure, has to be a little bit more than that, if you can. All right, so what I want you to do is just spend a couple of moments looking at that person in your mind's eye and sit, uh, so that you can remember it. Everybody got one? Hope so. Okay, so you can open your eyes now. You've got an image of a human in your mind, hopefully, of, of some kind. So let's, let's do an exercise. So I wonder what kind of image you drew in your mind's eye. Can you put your hand up if they were an adult? Okay, so almost everyone drew an adult? Cool. Um, were they young? Hands up. Were they middle-aged? Were they elderly? Not so many. Okay. Were they male? Okay. Almost everyone drew a male. Female? Anyone? Okay. A couple, couple of people. Cool. Did anyone draw a toddler? Cool. Uh, anyone in a wheelchair? Uh, pregnant woman? Someone with arthritis? Okay. So... It's, this isn't a trap, <laughs> but it's an interesting exercise, so <clears throat> it'd be worth pausing to consider what this says about what we automatically think of as normal. So almost everyone did an adult, 
they were like young, middle-aged, um, they were male. I didn't ask about the colour, I don't know if you had a coloured pen or not. <laughs> but, you know, what I'm saying is that we have automatic assumptions of what a person looks like. It's true, we all do, I do too. Um, so, if they were independent, healthy, able-bodied, neurotypical, that would make sense, because that's what our culture says is a good body. Um, and from a very young age, we learn that our worth depends on these things. It depends on our agency, whether we can do stuff in our own capacity, our ability, our power, our status. All of us know this. It's the, it's the soup we're swimming in. And while most of us wouldn't say that we give ascendancy to these metrics, um, it's hard not to have our values and sense of identity formed by them. Um, when I was younger, I struggled with my self-image, as probably lots of us have. Um, somewhere along the way, I had adopted a view that my body was kind of like a shell or a vessel, um, and that I could kind of do whatever I wanted with it, uh, which meant I could, um, I could change it so that it would reflect um, what a good body might look like. Um, and and, and that, that's the kind of, that's the messaging that's around us, right? That swirls around our bodies, that our bodies are not good enough with a little bit more money and a little bit more work and a little bit more care, we might be able to make them better because they're not quite good enough. That's, that's what so much of our economy's built on, that assumption. And yet the scriptures and the body of Jesus himself tells us that our bodies are the very site that God's image dwells in. This is different from a wellness mantra which calls us to worship our bodies, requires a price tag, consumption, and is another metric for us to measure ourselves against. Um, if our bodies are made in the image of God, we have a deeper and more reliable grounding for our self-esteem. Our identity is grounded in something outside of ourselves and something that's given. Um, I th um, when I, when I think about our relationship with our bodies, I think about, um, I think about my kids and, uh, and other just general kids, I guess, and I think we've got a lot to learn from children in this area. This is me. I grew up in, um, in like the heartland of Tanzania in like sort of, it's like semi-arid desert. I grew up in a village and um, there wasn't a lot of grass, not a lot of rain, but when it rained, it really rained. And this is, a, um, this is a photo of me sitting in a muddy puddle. <laughs> Makes sense um, within that context. But anyway, so, yeah, I was thinking, well, what should our relationship with our body be? And um, as many of us have seen firsthand, children delight in their bodies. You know, like my daughter was just like, doing crazy dance up here when they're worshiping like we've seen we've all seen we've all seen children they love their bodies they delight in them um i remember my son explain, exclaiming my hands are shivering with joy when he began to ride a pedal bike and i thought it was amazing that he said that it's so poetic but um but it's that children children's um sense of their bodies is not necessarily limited to their function like they take joy in new skills that they learn Definitely, but they delight in their bodies simply because they're theirs. Um, they receive their body as a gift. And for us, this gift is multiplied because not only have we received the gift of our bodies, but it is some, as a means through which we can give glory to God. Um, 
as, as Johnny explained, um, on any given week, I spend a lot of my time with different people, with different bodies. I spend time with my young kids and Jonathan, of course, but I spend quite a lot of time with kids and teens and adults who live with impairments of various kinds. And um, last week, two of the adults that I work with um, tragically died, which was um, a, very, a very significant um, experience for all of us. Um, and part of my role, just this last week, a couple of days ago, was to share the news of their passing with the groups that I lead. And um, in one class, an artist responded to this news um, by saying that these two friends, Sarah and Colin, would come back as better people. And that kind of made me curious. So I asked her caregiver um, what this might have meant. And she, she clarified that this meant what she was trying to say is that they'll come back without disabilities. And I was really, really struck by this comment. And I could relate on the one hand to her desire that her friends would be free of difficulty and distress, which they very rarely experienced. Um, but at the same time, it betrays a sense that their particular human bodies were less than, that, what, than what they should or could have been, that they were not normal um, think of the image you drew in your, in your mind's eye of a body. And this is really standard way to think, but this is not the biblical anthropology we see evident in Genesis 1 or in Genesis 5, which is after the fall. Despite Adam and Eve's decision to turn from trusting in God's order, God did not retract humans' ability to represent, them, represent him, even though they were broken. Um, according to... What's this? I... According to Stats New Zealand, one in four um, New Zealanders have a physical, sensory, learning, mental health disability. We have an ageing population. Um, in 2013, they did a survey of um, people over the age of 85, and 59% of them identified as being disabled. So, and then if we added children who can't walk, um, uh, people who experience temporary illness or injury, this number is huge. And, and by and large, we will experience um, a body that changes in its capacity over our lifetime. Um, so how should this theology of the body shape the way we relate to bodies that are different than ours? Um, it's a good question, a, a big question that has lot, lots of practical implications, but I just wanted to return to Genesis again. Um, following the creation narrative and the fall, a series of disastrous actions take place. In chapter 4, we read of Cain, who's gripped by anger and jealousy, so much so that he murders his brother. It's pretty gruesome. Um, and God comes to Cain and asks him where his brother can be found, and Cain responds with this striking question. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? In, in God's response, we see that he is. Later in Genesis um, 9, 6, following the great flood, God commands Noah not to eat meat that still has lifeblood in it. And he explains, for the lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. 
I can see that the grammar's wrong there. Um, <laughs> Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So here we see that God is attentively observing how we treat others. So though dramatic and violent, these passages clearly demonstrate that we are to keep each other, we are to tend each other, and all humans are born in as sisters and brothers born into the likeness of God. It shows that all human beings have dignity, which is given by God and must be upheld by us and will be upheld by him. Um, I wanted to tell another story. Um, this is a story of an artist who I don't directly work with, but we, had, we have lots of exhibitions as part of the studio that um, I work for, and there was this big exhibition around Matariki, around remembrance, and um, this artist, who I think might be in her 50s or 60s, she was recalling this very pertinent and, and um, vivid memory from her childhood. So she was born um, unable to walk, and um, she, she told this story and made this artwork that represented this memory when she went to, the fa went to a beach with her family, and um, sand, rock pools, water, all the sensory stuff. And, and what her father decided to do was to pick her up, to carry her from her wheelchair and to put her in a rock pool where she could feel the water and the rocks and um, fully engage with the experience of being by the ocean. And um, for me, like she did this amazing artwork that represented this, but for me that story is, is like this incredibly beautiful analogy of someone recognising the life that is, he was recognising the life in his daughter and he was finding a way so that she could experience the fullness of, of, of the ocean and the fullness of what her body could, was receptible to. Um, it was really, I was really moved by that. Um, so another, another practice um, I've been trying to do this week as I've prepared is, it sounds odd, but I've been trying to declare in my mind whenever I see someone in the car or on the train or on the street or at work that they are the image of God, like every person that I see, that person way far away and that person close up. I've been trying to tell myself in my mind, they're the image of God. It doesn't matter if they know God or even follow God, they're still the image of God. And... Um, I wonder if we did this, if we all did this, if it would change our thinking and, and, and what we do, what we do in regards to our body and the bodies of others. Um, so just coming into a close, um, you might be thinking, well, if we bear God's image in our bodies, uh, be they healthy or ill, able or impaired, why did Jesus have a healing ministry? Does anyone think that? <laughs> you might be thinking, well, um, if he, if, he, if he blesses and, and, and works in spite of suffering and illness, why would he bring wholeness? Um, so I think that's a big question. It's a big topic. I'm not going to try and, like, try and get to it today. But um, what I will say is it seems like a par paradox that on one hand God, that Jesus heals. We see an active healing ministry in his life, and yet he also embraces suffering as a means of revealing his glory. We see that on the cross. He does both. He heals and he embraces suffering because it is a site of divine revelation. 
Um, so what we're going to do is I'm, I'm going to get Victoria, who at the very last minute um, was asked to read this. I'm going to read a passage from John. I wonder if there was any more slides. There, there we go. This is, this is an image that depicts this passage. So this is a passage from John 9 where Jesus heals the man who was born blind. And I think this might help us just coming to a close to understand that paradox. Yeah. It's quite long, but it's interesting and a bit funny. Finish off too. Okay. It's a pleasure. <coughs> it's one of my favourite books, actually. As he went along, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work, and while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. The word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him, begging, asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and he put it on my eyes and he told me to go and wash. He, go, he told me to go to Salome, Salome and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such miracles? They were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened? The man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he'd been blind and he'd received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, but we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age and he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner, he replied. Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? 
Then they held incense at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Mm. Thank you. <coughs> it's a great story. Um, there's lots in there, um, but... I guess what I see, what I see in the story, is I see that the disciples wrongly assumed that the man's impairment was due to sin, and Jesus rebukes this. He's clear. He points out, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Then he draws near in an intimate and visceral way by touching his eyes and placing mud and saliva on them. Um, this in some way parallels the work of God forming Adam out of the dirt, but he comes close. He's not afraid. He comes close and he touches and he, he works with the material world that we live in. We also see that though this man has been blind up to this point, he has the ability to recognize the divinity of Jesus. He's able to see the true identity of Jesus while so many around him, including the most powerful and influential figures, remain blinded so he has true sight though he was blind we also see oh in this story we see that jesus honors the image of god within him and god uses his suffering to draw back the curtain on god's subversive kingdom where the blind see and the those with sight are blinded um again i think this there's a lot to say in this passage um and there's a lot to say about this paradox between healing and suffering. Um, but I want to finish with a personal story, which to me kind of speaks to the way God gently um, guides us through suffering um, and, and reveals his image in the midst of us. So when I was in my early 20s, a while ago now, um, I nursed my mother together with my family as she faced death. Um, she had been diagnosed with cancer 18 months earlier and she had kind of lived in this twilight zone where um, she was alive but parts of her were dying. Um, and and eventually, um, eventually this became final. She was, she was very sick um, and yet she loved God deeply. She had loved, deep, loved God deeply all her life and in her final moments when she was unable to speak, and unable to move, she was somehow miraculously able to sing to her Jesus. Um, 
And for me, I think that will be one of the most profound moments of my life. Um, in that moment, I witnessed her body, though weak it was, as a site of divine revelation. There was something true that happened there that no logic, no other argument could erase. So ironically, as we see so clearly in Jesus' body on the cross, it was the frailty of her body that magnified the beauty of God's image. Um, so that I've shared a lot of ideas um, and and of course we all have bodies and we often have complex relationships to our bodies. Um, but I hope this is an invitation to recognise God's image in your body and to recognise God's image collectively, corporately in the body of, of all of us, of, of, the, of those who occupy the world around us. Um, and I, I guess as I was preparing this message, I thought um, there'll be some of us perhaps all of us, that need healing, where we've thought of our, thought less of our bodies, um, thought less of our bodies and less of the bodies of others than we should. Um, we might need God's grace and presence so we can live in our suffering, because we do suffer, and to see what God might be revealing in the midst of it. So um, maybe if you could stand with me, um, I might pray and then... Um, yeah, perhaps, perhaps you might feel called um, to receive prayer or perhaps it might be best to pray with each other um, in this if you feel like you can be vulnerable enough to. Um, but anyway, I'll pray. We thank you, Father. We thank you, our God. We thank you for the gift of these bodies, the gift that cannot be removed, that we bear your image. And we, we stand here in our bodies, aware of our need for healing and for strength and for encouragement. Lord, we, we need to know this to be true in our bodies so that we can love others as dignified and fully human. Would you come and work amongst us? <laughs> 